Well, some of the good news is that we're back on the plus side of the temperature scale sometime later in the week. <laughs> and uh, many of you will appreciate that. It's amazing how God answers prayer, isn't it? You know, we've been sitting in worship committee meetings and talking about how God was going to grant us new members. And good to see Aditi and Dorcas welcome this morning. But who could have thought that God would go from to Nigeria to here to make it to make it happen? And we are so glad for the number of international people who have made this their church home. And we've been so gratified to be able to welcome them and now to see them minister for the Lord here as well. It's a real it's a real blessing to see that. We had our annual meeting in the past week, our annual general meeting, and looked at all of the matters concerning the church. And uh, I said at that time that uh, however long the annual meeting took, I would preach the same amount of time the next sermon. So the, the meeting began at 7 and was over at around 10, 10.30. So that would call for a three-and-a-half-hour sermon. But I just want to put your minds at ease this morning and tell you that was an idle threat on my part. Um, they say that the, uh, that the mind can't absorb when the backside goes numb. There's some kind of a connection there. And so I'm going to spare you all that this morning. But I mentioned the annual meeting just to say thank you to, in a public way, to Alison McHugh, who did a tremendous amount of work in the... Uh, in the days le leading up to the annual meeting. And uh, we're here uh, getting things ready and uh, booklets and uh, reports and things like that. And she showed her, I just thought some really good dedication to the kind of work she does. And I wanted to thank her publicly for that kind of, for that kind of work. Now this, sure, it's deserved. She isn't here. She's in some part, part of the other part of the building, maybe counting money. Downstairs. Downstairs? I hope it reaches her. If not, when you see her, just say thank you to her, will you please? Now this morning, I thought I'd cheer you up a little bit. And my message entitled, Rendezvous in the Desert. There's not a bit of snow to be seen. And so we're going we're gonna to look, uh, look at something a little different today. I'm always captivated by stories of discovery. And let me challenge you with a quote from Marcel Proust, who says, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I believe that's essentially what it means to find Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's pure discovery. We go from being blind to having our eyes opened, much as Paul's were on the Damascus Road. Now, for some people, the Lord has always been there, but he's not been seen. He's a treasure in the field that the walker stumbles over in Matthew chapter 13. And it's no wonder that when the U.S. Space Agency wanted to find a, a, a suitable name, for one of its probes, it called it discovery, to go 
as Star Trek says, boldly where no man has gone before. But the book of Acts is really a story of amazing discovery. And we're going to go there in Acts chapter 8 this morning. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, you, uh, you can. You see, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, a whole new realm opened to the world, and particularly to a new body of people that would be called the church. The church was born with explosive growth, and the message spread quickly to every other part of the world of that, that time, and the religious world seemed to fan out from Jerusalem, and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims encountered the exciting new possibilities, not of God dwelling in a temple made with hands, not of God being localized inside of a house of worship. But what happens in Acts chapter 2 is a divine announcement that says God is going to dwell inside. Christ in you, Paul later explains it as, the hope of glory. Jesus said to his disciples earlier in Acts, you shall be my witnesses. And then when, he, when he said that, he indicated a number of places in growing circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And this gathering of people here at Cornerbrook Baptist this morning is evidence that the church has grown to the uttermost parts of the earth because people from what would have been called the uttermost parts of the earth are here. And it's equally true that in the uttermost parts of the earth today, this gospel message is going forth. But I want to take you to one of these amazing stories of discovery in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 8, and I've really got an agenda this morning. Let's put it up front. The agenda is water bap baptism. I'm tired of snow, I want water. I'm tired of being dry. This pastor needs to get a little wetter in the days, days ahead. And so I want to present this to you today. Now let's join, the, join a story in verse 26 of chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? himself or someone else. 
Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. You're right, Ed, good news. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. It's amazing the kind of lengths that God will go to in order that we might find him. And in this case, you read this passage with me this morning, he diverts the efforts of an evangelist away from the crowds he was probably preaching to to meet one solitary traveler who's spending the hours of a long journey by reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's a familiar story. We often do it. We pass the time on a long trip with a good, good book. But it also illustrates to me that God is never stuck for a way to reach people. I read last week that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who shall be heirs of, sal- of salvation in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Now, Philip gets directed away from what he's doing to a stretch of road near Gaza. It's a bleak piece of landscape, but it becomes the scene of discovery. Philip found that he was not alone. There's another traveler on the road. Uh, an Ethiopian financial officer. On his way home to the court, they named the queen, Queen Queen Candace. And as he rode in a chariot, he was reading, but he was missing something in his un, un, un understanding. Now, you should know that this man must have had a significant amount of personal resources to own to have in your possession and have ownership of a copy of the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah out of the Old Old Testament, must have cost this man a princely sum. And he was putting his resources into something that would feed his soul. Now, I've got to say that if a person was going to discover Jesus from an Old Testament source, the absolute best book would be Isaiah. I'm not the first to say it. I wish I had been. But Isaiah is often called the first, the fifth gospel. Now let me tell you what's there in the book of Isaiah that could have had such an amazing impact on this man's life. In chapter 6, we have a marvelous vision of God that I preached on here a few weeks ago. In chapter 7, we have the virgin birth of Jesus foretold. In chapter 9, the Christmas story unfolds. In chapter 53, we've got a full-fledged Easter story. In chapter 661, we've got a profile of the Messiah's ministry, which Jesus later uses in the the synagogue in Nazareth when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me to preach 
the gospel, and he goes on to explain what that, what that means. And in chapter 63, which is a neglected chapter that I intend to bring you a message on soon, we've got the triumphant Lord executing judgment upon the wicked of the world. Now, the Ethiopian very likely had converted to Judaism. He read the scroll, but his understanding is foggy. And in the meantime, Philip intersected the road of the chariot, and the, con and the conversation had begun. Make no mistake, this is not a chance encounter between these two, these two people. If I know anything about the way the Spirit works, he is the executive director of the church. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides the church into the truth of Jesus Christ. And he's directing Philip to answer a question that's about to come forward. He's promoting discovery. And Philip is invited to ride along, and the scroll immediately becomes the topic of, of conversation between them. It's about discovering someone. There's something in God's word that needs to be unlocked for all of us. Now, as it should happen, the, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 50, 53. To anyone who knows the book, it's the account of the suffering servant of the Lord. And the Ethiopian reads of the helplessness, lamb to the slaughter, dumb as a sheep goes before shearers, cut off from the land of the living, the iniquity of the world placed upon him. All of these words that talk about helplessness and injustice. And so the Ethiopian begins to wonder about the identity of the one who is in the book who is suffering. Who is this person? And Philip must have been so aware of how the Spirit was leading him at this point in time because he began to quite properly relate Christ from Isaiah chapter 53, Ethiopian heard him gladly. God's at work here. And he believes the truth that he's being told. Philip comes along at a moment when he reveals a mystery to this man and says, the one you are reading about, I know. The one that's shrouded in so much mystery for you, I've walked with. Perhaps I know as much as anybody knows about him. And when someone grasps the gospel this readily, when someone believes this quickly, you've got to acknowledge that the Spirit of God is working on him. And Philip must have been very thorough, and he could be, because this hungry heart consumed the good news and then showed his readiness for the next step in his spiritual journey. Now, perhaps Philip told him, about the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. You recall it. Jesus told a very reluctant John, John the Baptist, that he needed to be fulfilled. John says, no, no, no. I, 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 need to be, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus says, suffer it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. Philip could have related how multitudes had just been baptized during the great outpouring of Pentecost just days ago at Jerusalem. 3,000 souls came into the church on that day. And probably so, so many of them were, were baptized as well. In this case, the first body of water makes the Ethiopian anxious to complete what he started. And sometimes when we... 
When we look at baptism, we tend to look at it as something that is optional in our lives. One of the main points I want to make to you this morning is that going to waters of of baptism is a necessary internal drive that occurs in the life of a Christian. And so the first body of water gets him going. The good news about Jesus creates a willingness to follow him closer and to model our life after his. That's my agenda today. That's the whole Christian agenda, to model our life closely after that of Jesus Christ. And when the opportunity comes, and John had made this amazing announcement about him, John has seen him coming on the banks of the Jordan, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The next thing you see is Philip being is Jesus being baptized in, in water. See, the Ethiopian showed the depth of his belief by stating something that's so important in his question. And the King James Version says it so nicely. Ethiopian says, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be bat- baptized? And I could have just as easily named the sermon a different way. I called it Rendezvous in the Desert. But I could have just as easily have called it What's Stopping You from Being Baptized? What's Holding You Back? Once you believe, you become a candidate for baptism in water. And true obedience should create an urgency inside of our lives. You see, this man had never read the New Testament because it had not been written. He's depending upon, he's depending upon Philip's witness of Jesus and what happened in Jerusalem just days before that period of time. He didn't shrink from the thought. He didn't waffle on this issue. He proposed that if baptism is the way I show this change in my life, I do it now. And so he didn't attend a new converts class, did he? He hadn't become a member of anything. But the body of Christ, the only new body that he belonged to, and that was enough for him to stop the chariot and submit himself to Christ and says, how do I show what's happened to me now? I know who's in Isaiah chapter 53. I know the suffering servant of the Lord. And Philip, you've enlarged it for me. You've told me who he is now. So what's my next step? And as soon as water is there... Here's water. Let's do this. And here's the key. Imagine that you would be able to do something and follow directly in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you this morning to consider water baptism, and I know many of you already have been. But consider this. Most of us can't walk on water. I don't know anyone here in this church who's raised the dead My life and yours can't take away anyone else's sins. But in water baptism, we do something that's identical to what Jesus Christ did. We follow him in that kind of manner. And when we look at water baptism, perhaps the correct attitude is to say, Jesus did this. I'm going to as well. See, baptism follows very closely 
the discovery of Christ. And let me give you the order of events again. The Spirit leads Philip to the desert place to witness to the Ethiopian who's going through the same space. The Ethiopian answers the call of the Spirit and he receives the good news about Christ. And then the Ethiopian suggests that he cement his decision to follow the Lord in baptism. And notice that the convert makes the suggestion, not the evangelist. It is the obedience in the heart of the convert, of the man who has just found Jesus. It is not pressure by the evangelist to push him in that direction. I've read this Acts account many times. Some of you, too, have read the Bible through over and over again. Some make it a yearly practice. But this time I saw something so powerful in it that I'd not considered before. See, we can rarely plan something and merely expect the whole whole Holy Spirit to bless it. He initiates action. He brings Philip to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And to his credit... Philip is willing to go. The text says this, the spirit said go, and Philip got up and went. And the episode from the Acts of the Apostles that we read together this morning was not planned from a human level. This was not the initiative of Philip. This was the initiative of God. But we've got to be prepared to respond when God moves us in a certain direction. This encounter might never have taken place, and a deep need might, might, might have gone unmet if Philip had not been willing to let God lead him. Philip could have said, Lord, there's nobody down in that desolate region. It's in the middle of nowhere. I got a big revival going on here. I'm needed right here where I am now. No, he goes. You see, when God decides to do something, he doesn't have to check with us, really. But it's us who need to be in one accord with the way he wants to take us. It is us who have to seize the opportunity. We need to leave the planning to God and listen sensitively to where he wants to take us. The Spirit of God is in the moments we least expect. My father told me that he was first convicted of his own personal sin. As a young man, he attended a water baptismal service on the bank of the Exploits River. He saw people whom he knew leave a life of sin, give themselves to Jesus Christ, step into the river and announce to everyone who watched in that very public of places and everyone who listened these people announced that they were walking a new road, that they were going in a brand new direction. Their baptism gave evidence that this, be, this was an outward symbol of something that had taken place inwardly in their lives. It was an announcement to the world that Jesus Christ had come to reside, and I'm showing it by this public act of obedience. You see, their determination induced a hunger in my father's life that God satisfied when he surrendered to Christ. Being led by the Spirit in what we do and where we go always yields good spiritual rewards. Anytime we are obedient to God, God blesses that life. 
There's a wonderful freshness in this account. I love reading it. There's no interference there. There's no politics. It's just simple faith, proclamation of the Word of God, and pure obedience. That's so down to earth. That's so godly. I love it when structure doesn't need to be present and objections give way to spiritual freedom and openness to God. It's so simple. Here's a man with a need searching for an answer to his need. Here's a man with a question about who's the subject of the book. And then God meets the need for his questing soul. While he searched, God was planning a visit from someone who would light up his world with the greatest of all discoveries. It appears to me that this Ethiopian was refreshingly humble as well, occupied a high office, but not so high that he couldn't invite a stranger to help him with his quest. He's reading something he cannot grasp, and he almost cries out in this passage, tell me, please, explain it to me, and this is the prepared Christian's greatest opportunity. Spirit of God hands Philip a unique moment. A man who's viewing Isaiah's finest portrait of the Messiah. There is no greater Old Testament passage where Jesus Christ in all of his, all of his beauty and all of his humility shines through than Isaiah chapter 53. We will find ourselves there if we care to look. The whole mission of the cross is proclaimed there. And it just so happens that when Philip reaches this man in the chariot, that he's reading the most provocative part of Old Testament literature. Philip had walked with him. He'd seen He'd seen the passion of Isaiah 53 just weeks or months before, hanging on a cross, giving his life. He'd seen the graphic depiction of what this man is now trying to grasp for himself. And so it's no wonder that the message of the Messiah begins to bubble out of Philip's life and begins to, to, point, uh, to point out to him, I have watched this unfold. I've seen this with my own eyes. Let me tell you that the witness uh, that an eyewitness has is greater than any witness you can find. The first thing that happens at a crime scene, were there any witnesses? It's also true in this portion that Philip and the Ethiopian are involved in. Philip said, I've been an eyewitness to these things. I've seen this unfold. I've seen the suffering servant of the Lord. And suddenly there's a spiritual transaction that takes place in this man's life. He begins to know in, de in the depths of his heart, revealed by the Spirit, he begins to know this person who is prophesied of in Isaiah, but lives forever in the heart when he's welcomed, when we're open to him. How many times has God tried to do something through his Spirit and through his Word, but intervention is denied? Let me ask you what kind of quest you're on today. Let me ask myself the question. Is there a quest in my soul? 
See, there are so many people who live in a desert place without God, and some of them are hungry for truth with no one to explain what this all means. They're on a long trip that's called life, and they're missing the identity of the King of kings and Lord of lords. They need someone to join the chariot. They need someone to join into their lives and explain to them a fresh direction that God has for them. God's got a plan for your life and mine. And we need new eyes, as Proust said, to discover what God has in store for us. He has a plan for them that may involve an appointment with you or me. I trust you awaken in the morning with an understanding. God, who are you going to intersect my pathway with today? That I might be the kind of person who will show Jesus Christ to someone who is, who's on a quest for him. He wants us to lead people towards an encounter with Jesus. And every time he does, it'll end up in waters of baptism. He will ask for our obedience with familiar words. Let me tell you that in the coming weeks here at Cornerbrook Baptist, there will be water. Now what will hinder you from being baptized? If you want to talk more about this, I invite you to get in touch with me. If you've not been baptized and you need it, an even deeper compelling story than this one, I'll provide you with one. I'll provide you with, with whatever the scripture speaks to on this particular matter. In just a few moments, Ken is coming and we're going to begin communion. There are only two ordinances that Christ gave his church. He gave us the ordinance of communion. And this morning you will all, all of you who know him, will be obedient in communion. We will come and we will take the emblems of his broken body and his shed blood, and we will remember the price that was paid. And I won't steal any of Ken's thunder in that. And we'll be obedient in communion. My strong suggestion to you today, perhaps it goes as deep as insistence, is that as you are obedient in communion, be just as obedient in baptism. It's from the same Lord. It's from the same gospel. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you today for giving us such a graphic picture from the scriptures of what happens inside of a heart that is touched by the message of the gospel. I pray that we will, we will clearly choose for you, that we'll open our lives to, the, to your blessings through obedience. And I pray that as we, as we ponder what you've placed in our hearts today. I pray the Spirit will move us closer towards you, and that our hearts will be attuned to what you're saying to us just as you spoke to that Ethiopian so long ago. Bless us as we ponder our own spiritual future and our development. 
And I pray that those who have not yet been baptized in water will choose for you, choose obedience, and follow you in this exciting new step. We thank you for it and give you praise. And as we begin our time of communion and as Ken comes to lead us, I pray, Lord, that this will be a time of sober and quiet reflection, a time when we reflect on the greatest of all gifts, a Savior for us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.